Welcome to Almost World Podcast. This is Elmo Odor Jr., your host, and we have an awesome guest. His name is Rupert McCallum. Uh, Rupert, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm Rupert and I'm 44 years old. I'm living in, in the Netherlands at the moment. I've been married to Mari for about three years. I was born in Sydney. Most of my life I lived in Sydney, although I have also worked in China and Germany. You can probably notice a bit of British accent there, like that's because I lived in UK when I was a kid for a little while. Anyway, um, my two degrees were at University of New South Wales, so I did Bachelor of Science uh, with first-class honours in maths, and then I did PhD in maths. It was on topics related to... Um, it, it's a thing called theory of buildings, which is sort of related to generalisations of projective geometry and connections of the geometries with groups, so I did that. I've also done two postdoc positions in Germany, uh, where I was trying to get research done. Um, I've been without full-time work for a while, unfortunately, but I'm still trying to get research done, and I've got a bit of an idea in my head for a business model. It's a, that's a, such an interesting uh, story you've got there, bro. And um, to be honest, I'm a little envious because you've traveled so much already. And But uh, I want to ask you a question. Um, uh, I I think you're, you're, you're atheist, right? That is correct, yep, yep, I... Yeah, I don't think there's very good reason to believe any of the traditional teachings of any of the major religions are true. Yeah. And but uh, I want to ask, like, um, were you re religious before, or uh, or what happened? I have never been religious. Like, um, my parents were both atheists, and also all my grandparents were as well, except you know maybe for my uh, grandmother on my mother's side because she requested. A, Christian funerals, so she might have been a bit uncertain about what she thought about. But yeah, like when I was young, I was growing up in England, and we were sort of exposed to a little bit of religious teaching at school, and I was interested in it for a while, but at quite a young age, I decided uh, I didn't really believe this. Uh, my parents said they didn't really believe it either. So I sort of, I lost interest in religion for a while. Uh, a bit later on, I studied philosophy of religion when I was a young adult. Like, I've had a look at what people like Richard Swinburne or Edward Fieser have to say about um, so Richard Swinburne and Edward Fieser, I've read in a fair amount of depth, to a lesser extent also William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinger. So, yeah, I mean, I sort of, I take an interest in what philosophers have to say about it, but I don't think at this stage in the development of human knowledge we have very good reason to believe that the traditional forms of theism are true. There was one book I read quite recently, it's called Progressive Atheism. It sort of um, talks about, you know, whether given the advances we've had in our knowledge, whether, you know, some kind of religious truth in some broad sense is still something we could aspire to um, have good reason to believe to be true, but not the traditional versions of theism, I don't think. Yeah, that's my take. Interesting. So in terms of the uh, school of thoughts, for example, um, are you dualist or monist? Which one do you... Oh, look, I think, is... I think probably physicalism is the most likely account to be true of physical reality. Like, uh, I'm somewhat, you know, tensive about that. And, yeah, I'm, I mentioned to you earlier on, I think I'm not hugely well-read in philosophy of mind, so I'm not quite sure what the best view there is. But I think it's quite likely that conscious experiences just are physical processes. You know, I have a reasonably good grasp of what, uh, best science tells us about physical reality 
and you know there's interesting questions about the interpretation of quantum mechanics or whatever. I also take an interest in the nature of mathematical truth, which you know maybe is in some sense is something over and above you know what our best physics says. And I'm also quite interested in you know what should we say about moral discourse? Does it reflect objective reality or not? But yeah, like basically, I think you know there's discourse about physical reality, discourse about mathematics and moral discourse, and you know you say about those whatever you say. But that's sort of you know more or less a complete picture of where human knowledge is at, and you know beliefs in supernatural entities or. You know, traditional religious teachings, I don't think we have very good reason to think they're true uh, at this stage of mm-hmm. human knowledge. Okay, but um, what, what, what about um, a priori knowledge? For example, um, a lot of uh, intuitive, intuitive forms of knowledge. What can you say about that? Okay, well, look, um, I haven't read all the way through Kant's critique of pure reason. Like, he was sort of trying to determine how... Um, uh, synthetic a priori knowledge can be possible. I think our ideas about the a priori have probably moved on a little bit since then. Like, for example, you know, with regard to geometry, you know, we no longer think we somehow know a priori what the correct geometry is about the physical space we live in. Uh, like, with our intuitions about mathematical truths, like, I think there's some sense in which, you know, we're sort of driven to construct them, you know, by our experiences and our interaction with the physical world, but it does sort of become its own domain. You know, in some sense, it seems self-evident to us that the axioms are true about some kind of abstract structure, like with piano arithmetic or whatever, being true about the natural numbers. Um, Yeah, what would other examples be? Like, Mathematical knowledge seems to be, in some way, a domain of a priori knowledge, you know, however you account for how that could be possible. And, um, yeah, like, I know Edward Fieser does try to argue that, you know, certain metaphysical truths you can know a priori, and then he tries to get the existence of God out of that. I guess the thing about that is, um, you know, when I read through Edward Fieser's arguments, like, it always seems to me with one of the crucial premises, you know, I can entertain a doubt. Like, for example, you know, whenever any change is brought about in any substance, then there's always some second entity that's causally responsible for the change happening, or, you know, however exactly you would phrase it. Like, it always seems to me I could conceive of reality being structured in such a way that it wasn't really true, and I think you've sort of got to go out there and check, you know, is my model I've got in my head of how reality is, does it actually, is it validated by experience? So I don't think Edward Fieser's a priori knowledge claims are really very well supported. And if you want to ask whether moral knowledge um, is a priori, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm pretty friendly to meta-ethical anti-realism, so I'm not really sure it counts as knowledge at all. Or, you know, if you want to have a realist account and you want to say it is knowledge, I think probably our best account of how it could be knowledge is, you know, with our acquaintance with experiences of pleasure and pain, you know, maybe somehow our acquaintance with those experiences somehow gives us access to some kind of normative truth, you know, just from knowing what it's like to feel pleasure or be in pain, you get a normative truth out of that. So I don't think you'd really call that a priori because it comes from experience. So, yeah, I guess mathematical truths are really the only genuine examples of a priori knowledge I can think of right now. Okay, okay. And I wanted to ask you about, for example, um, uh, Thomas Nagel, he wrote in his, uh, I think his book, the how, What It's Like to Be a Bat. 
and that uh, subjective experience is uh, is isn't uh, something we can test in a scientific uh, scientifically. So in order for for us to actually uh, delve into that the, to that those um, uh, inquiries, we have to have a sort of a rationalist. Uh, approach in the epistemology and so uh, what when it when we talk about consciousness um, do you really think that consciousness simply arrived from uh, as an emergence to, from a physic purely physical world I'm definitely tempted to entertain that that no maybe these conscious experiences present to me right now simply literally are physical processes in the brain that's what they are I don't have direct access to the fact that that's what they are but, you know, that's what's going on. And, yeah, okay, the experiences have content which is present to me. That's the nature of what consciousness is. But, yeah, maybe ultimately I literally would identify conscious experiences with just, you know, physical processes that are happening in some organism's nervous system. But, yeah, I did say that I hadn't looked in the philosophy of mind very closely. And, you know, it may be that I would update my views about that if I thought about it more. But if you think about what Thomas Nagel said, and, yeah, I agree it's a very interesting challenge. Like, he says there are some facts about the nature of the subjective experiences of a bat, which we can't really imagine, and those are facts which are inexpressible in any human language. So, yeah, um, I'm not sure, but maybe I would say if only we somehow radically improved our theory of how subjective experiences map onto brain states and we did some really intensive study of, you know, what exactly is going on in the brain of a bat. Like, we still wouldn't have become directly acquainted with the subjective experiences of the bat, but maybe our knowledge of how the experience is structured could become so thorough that, you know, maybe in some sense, you know, that's all you need from the point of view of, you know, propositions that you want to express in language. And, of course, you might say, well, you still haven't actually had the experience itself. You know, like with the thought experiment of Mary's room, where Mary's the um, colourblind neuroscientist who knows everything there is to know about what goes on in human brains when they perceive the colour red, but then she actually perceives the colour red for the first time. So it seems that, you know, somehow that's access to new knowledge. Like, it's obviously a different mental state, but I'm not quite sure if it's extra knowledge, yeah. So I think that's the best I can do by way of a reply. But, yeah, I should also say, you know, I haven't thought about that area of philosophy in great depth, so, you know, I might want to think about it more carefully. Yeah, and when it comes to that sort of... Um, uh, uh, when it comes to what Nagel said about subjective experience, you know, in order for you to actually dive into what the conscious experience is, you, you have to rely on a dualistic form of inquiry rather than uh, a, a simply posteriori empirical research? I don't think I have to be committed to substance dualism. I can say I'm currently aware that some stuff is present, you know, whatever I want to call it, you know, visual sensations, physical sensations in my body, you know, impressions that there are thoughts happening, you know, that is all present, okay, so that's some stuff that's there. I don't know the exact nature of what it is, you know. As I investigate the world more thoroughly, I can hope to maybe develop a theory about what it is. 
you know, and it's not a theory that's known with certainty, you know, it can be revised in the light of future experiences, but I could maybe come to think, you know, given everything I know about the world, you know, my best theory about it for now is that these experiences which seem to be present, you know, really are just physical processes in my brain. Like, I think that's fair. So when I actually contemplate the experiences themselves, which are present right now, I think I don't have to take a stand on, you know, are they or are they not physical processes? And some people insist, oh, you can see that they're non-physical, they can't be. And I used to think that as well when I was an undergraduate. You know, I admit, I thought, you know, the idea that they could just be physical processes doesn't make any sense. But, you know, somehow or other, a switch occurred in the way I think about it, and now I'm not quite so sure. I think it makes sense to entertain that maybe they are just physical processes and, you know, maybe our best scientific picture of how reality is could maybe confirm that. And I want to ask because um, it seems that um, your, your, your real view is purely scientism, you know, that everything can be explained scientifically. Uh, e even in the future as well. It sort of it depends exactly how you understand scientism. Like, first of all, it's quite hard to define. You know, what makes a line of inquiry scientific? You know, how do we define what science is? You know, it's hard to give a definition. But yeah, those areas of inquiry, you know, that are usually thought of as the sciences, they do a pretty good job of giving us, you know, about as much knowledge as we can get. There's mathematics as well, of course, but, you know, maybe that's just one of the sciences. Yeah, as for moral inquiry, yeah, well, I'm not sure we should say we're seeking knowledge there, but, you know, we're in some way sort of trying to work out what our attitude is to human life and how we want to interact with one another. Or, you know, you could interpret it as, you know, we are seeking out some kind of objective truth. So if you did do that, then you might want to say that's an area of knowledge which isn't a science, but I'm not really sure what I think about that. I don't know if you want to call abstract set theory part of science, but yeah, I do believe it is giving us some kind of knowledge. So if you think that shouldn't be called scientific, it's something else, then okay, that's a counterexample to my... I want to ask about what you uh, would define as free will. Or I, I, I would assume that you're a hard determinist, but in, 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 in light of the metacognition that we humans have, um, it's still not proven whether it's illusory or not. Uh, wh what do you think? Yeah, uh, am I a hard determinist? Okay, let me think. Um, you've got to get clear about what the free will question is. I guess my main thought about it is, you know, if you mean libertarian free will, contracausal, like, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I would know what it feels like to decide. Okay, what my understanding is of what it means is, like, first of all, if you look at physical processes, there's a couple of different cases. There's a case of something which is purely deterministic, where everything that happens is the inevitable outcome of what the state of the system was before. A lot of our physical theories are deterministic. There's also the case of some element of purely stochastic randomness, as happens with some interpretations of quantum mechanics. Now, my understanding of what libertarian free will is, it's the idea that there's a third possibility, that, you know, maybe there's some kind of non-physical entity called a soul. I think you probably need to make this a part of it, that there's a non-physical entity called a soul, and it has some kind of mode of operation. You know, it's not determinism, it's not randomness, it's something called free choice, you know, however you understand that. And we humans, we really do freely choose our actions, we could have chosen otherwise. So, you know, we can make the history of the world go differently by making a choice other than 
you know, just the inevitable consequence of the laws of physics, and uh, we're morally responsible for what we choose. You know, maybe we're tempted to do something, but we struggle against it, and if we fail in our struggle against the temptation, then we're morally responsible for that, and we're morally required to make up for it in some way. So that kind of view, I don't think it is supported by our best scientific picture of the world. And you know, what were you asking again? Um, you said, am I a hard determinist in the sense of not only do I think, you know, determinism or possibly determinism plus randomness is true, but I also combine that with the idea that there's no real moral responsibility. Is that what you were asking? Yeah, but um, also in simply that our own actions, our free will is simply an illusion. I think if you've got the idea, like, of course, it's true that, you know, the experience of deciding what to do, you know, you have the impression that you're making a choice, you have the impression that you could have chosen otherwise. But if you think it would somehow have been possible for you to make the history of the world go differently than what would have been required by, you know, the laws of physics combined with the facts of the physical state of the universe before you made the choice. If you think that's possible, then, yeah, I, I do believe that's an illusion, yeah. As far as I know, because I don't know of any, you know, experimental evidence that that is possible. You know, I, I I've noticed that in in a way you don't really hold to a single uh, point of view. You 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 just consider several, and um, you uh, uh, allow for possibilities that one might be the true or the other might not be, and um, th that's something that I think it's good to be open-minded. But yeah, like you sort of you make best guess about what reality might be like, you know, as far as you know at the moment. Okay, so in terms of, for example, um, um, assenting to propositions is something that would require individual agency. So I think that is in a way that's evidence that we have free will. Okay, can you? Elaborate that, like, in what sense of free will? In the contra-causal sense of free will, you know, you could make the history of the universe go differently, you know, apart from what is required by the laws yeah, of but, physics. Yeah, but uh, what I meant think, by yeah. assenting to yeah. a proposition, for example, was if you if I ask you a question, um, uh, do you want to answer my question? So you said yes or you said no, but either way, um, e just be because you answered a, the answer the or assented to a proposition of whether yes or no, that would mean that um, it, you had to have individual agency in order to have a logical answer for that. Because if if you were, you were said to answer that because the universe has caused you, therefore your answer does not actually make sense to what my own question. Well, I think individual agency could be all right, you know, because of course I'm aware that, you know, thought processes happen. I try to decide what to do. I come to a conclusion. So, yeah, like I'm aware of what the experience is like of making a decision about what to do. It's just that if you're also saying not only that, but, you know, this is some kind of process which is not completely determined by the laws of physics, I don't really know why I would think that account of what it is like is true, you know, just from my acquaintance with the nature of the experience. Like, I don't think that's supported by any evidence at the moment. But, you know, like, individual agency, you know, of course, you know, I mean, of course I still say, 
oh, you know, I choose to pick up this cup of coffee. Yeah, so, you know, there was a thought process that happened there. You know, I thought to myself, I want to have more, more coffee. And, you know, there's an experience called, you know, making a decision about what to do. It seems to you that you could have done otherwise. And, you know, sometimes you have competing temptations, you know. Sometimes there's an inner struggle and, you know, you have to work out what to do with your life and, you know, will I bother to get useful work done today? So, you know, all of those experiences happen. And, you know, when you're interacting, yeah. Yeah, and I want to ask, like, um, does a purely physicalist worldview entail a or is inevitably um, logically concluding to a an existential nihilist worldview? Um, let me think about like, do you mean in the sense of moral nihilism? Intrinsic meaning. Intrinsic meaning. And... Um, maybe it's a little bit hard to reconcile with intrinsic meaning, but I'm not sure what you mean by intrinsic meaning. But, you know, obviously I do not find my life to be meaningless because, you know, there are a lot of things that, you know, for me personally have a great deal of meaning, you know, like my marriage or, you know, my career, my work in mathematics or, you know, my efforts to try and make the world better or, you know, my hopes for what might be for human civilization if we survive, you know, things like that. So, yes, I do attach meaning to them, but intrinsic meaning, I'm not exactly sure what it could mean. I mean, do you think there is intrinsic meaning? And if so, what do you think it is? Okay, so if, if I were to believe that there was intrinsic meaning, I would say that there's a grand scheme to all of this. No, there's a... It's a, a greater purpose. That, w that would be my definition of, a, of intrinsic meaning. So that would partly mean, you know, there's a higher intelligence that has a purpose for us. Yeah, that's part of the idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not aware of reason to think that's true. I think there probably are at least some reasons to think it's not true because if you look at the history of evolution and, you know, all the various design mistakes that happened while species were evolving you know there's all sorts of machinery and biological organisms which looks a lot like a design error and you know if there was a designer here it would be very very incompetently designed so it looks quite a lot like it's just natural selection and you know looking at the incredible vastness of the universe you know and the bit that we can see okay it's got 70 sextillion stars in it but the universe as a whole could be much bigger or even infinite and 70 sextillion stars and then there's just our own tiny little milky way with 100 billion stars and we're just you know one tiny blue green planet third planet from the sun and yeah and we're basically you know just a bunch of chemical scum that evolved on this particular planet and yeah like the idea that there's some kind of cosmic meaning to it all. Yes, of course, it's possible, but it's sort of hard to reconcile with the picture of reality that science gives us. And also, you know, if there is some real purpose behind it all, then, you know, think of all the excruciating suffering endured by all those animals living in the wild over so many hundreds of millions of years of evolutionary history. And, you know, we're only just starting to realise, you know, just how bad wild animal suffering is and think of all the human suffering over the course of human history, the horrible things we did to one another and to animals, you know, all this suffering, you know, is there an ultimate point to it? Well, yeah, I'd like to think that we could sort of make there be a point by, you know, mor making moral progress ourselves and making the universe better and making it true that we all have good reason to believe, to, to be glad that the universe exists. I'd like to think that that could happen and that I could be part of bringing that about. But, yeah, like the idea that, you know, there's some intelligent designer who had a purpose for all this, like it doesn't make much sense to me when I look at, you know, what's actually going on. Yeah, but um, it, it's kind of funny because when, it, when you talk about you applying meaning to your own life, 
you know it it's sort of like um something that i wouldn't say uh, intellectually dishonest but something that um you choose for yourself because it, you it, as, besides the facts that you understand that there is no intrinsic meaning uh you you're able to apply meaning to your own life and 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 you you feel that that your your own authority is something that on what is meaningful to you is something that you can rely on what i find i find that certain goals matter to me okay like that's clear you know right now i think you know what do i want the rest of my life to be i find that there are things i care about you know and if my wife died i'd be devastated so that's just a fact about how i am that's how my brain's wired up at the moment now you might say you know in what sense is it authoritative well it's authoritative as a matter of experience because the fact that you care about stuff does drive you to make choices about what to do but you might sort of be getting you know the meta ethical questions about you know is there objective morality or whatever now my ideas about that like you know when i was younger yeah sure i did feel as though there was some kind of objective morality and i'm still a bit ambivalent about that you know i'm not quite sure what i think about that question but my ideas evolved as time goes on you know as i read more and more um but yeah like you're sort of trying to raise the question of, you know, how is my own sense of meaning authoritative? Yeah, I think really, you know, it's just the psychological reality that, you know, I find that there's stuff I care about and it influences how I decide what to do. Like is the idea maybe that, you know, perhaps I should be anxious about, you know, am I really truly doing the right thing? Is that part of the thought? Or um... No, it's not. But um, what, I mean, what I meant was that, for example, um, if you were to understand that you're simply an automaton following... A, a, an accidental programming brought about by an explosion of, from a singularity you know it, it's, it's kind of funny that you would actually uh, continue to live being that knowing that there is no, no intrinsic meaning for it and I, I, I would assume that it would lead you to either a nihilism or a certain hedonism I, but I'm not sure but I'm, I'm not something someone who judges but from my logical point of view that's how I would understand it from that standpoint well what should I do instead I mean okay you mentioned hedonism well you know hedonism yeah fine but um you know you may have heard I don't know who told this joke but you know it was someone sort of you know trying to defend Christianity and he said well there are a lot of people who say to themselves um well, I'm not happy right now, but I would be happy if only I had $10 million and a Learjet and a new mistress every month. And his reply is, try it, you won't like So, yeah, I mean, at some point, hedonism just becomes empty and you want something more. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Yeah. Here's, a, here's a proposition that I, I, you might consider. You know, for example, I myself, in a way, I'm sort of a theist, but I'm also a, a pure physicalist, same as you, that... I believe that everything can be um, uh, explained by some scientific uh, inquiry, I guess. But in terms of, for example, how I understand my life, I I understand that, um, for example, my love for my family, or my 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 obje- my objectiveness to truth and justice, and that, or for example, uh, simply my own free will, are something that are self-evident to me. So in in terms of self-evident, I would see assume that in a way there it is of a dualistic nature, but simply that is can actually be reduced to a f- certain physicalism. Yeah. So um, 
Oh, so what I'm saying is that um, because phys- we 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 do not have to assume that physicalism can explain everything away, you know, and because there are certain scientific gaps that we have not uh, we do not know yet, we I don't think that it's, it's philosophically and uh, it has philosophical integrity to actually assume things that we do not know yet, you know, as that's why I I call myself an agnostic very much because. Um, in terms of what the p- picture the universe uh, shows me, whether there's God or not, um, that's not really for me to say because I I don't have the knowledge to, to see the, uh, to understand what picture it actually tells me. You know, so uh, the universe might show me a a uh, an uh, indifferent universe to that d- doesn't care at all uh, about the suffering of. Of mankind and wildlife, but uh, but it could actually a b- be a picture of a fallen creation, and it's simply that I myself am I'm not an authority on on what could actually be a, a the absolute truth. So in a way, I simply hold things uh, and be stay on the fence rather than um, focusing on on what I would assume to be true. You know, so that, that in in a way, I also value. Uh, epistemological approaches that are not just uh, based on empirical evidence, but also things that I hold as self-evident in in how I act in every day of my life. Yeah, well, um, with regard to the point you made about being agnostic, yeah, I do think that's totally fine, except that if you're talking about a god who has all of the traditional attributes, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, I think it's very, very hard to make sense of how that could possibly be true given everything we observe. I do think the evidence against that particular conception of God is quite strong. But if you sort of back off a little bit and you say, well, you know, perhaps God is not fully omnipotent or, you know, maybe there's some kind of... uh, super intelligence that designs this uh, cosmos or yeah of course those are possibilities uh, i can't be said to have knowledge with regard to whether it's true or not i don't think there's anything counting in favor of my believing it to be true but it's totally fine just to suspend judgment and say i don't know i think that's fine yeah i do agree with that stance um uh with regard to the point you made about things that are self-evident you might need to remind me just once again what is it you find to be self-evident the fact that you have free will that's Self-evident to you? Okay, well, let's think about that. Um, You do mean in the sense of making a choice where, in principle, you could make the history of the universe go differently to what is required by the laws of physics. Like, you do indeed, it's self-evident to you from your experience that that is possible, or is it more a case of, oh, I'm not sure it could be? Which one is it? Well, it's a it's a case of compatibilism, I guess. That um, in a way, it is in, in the nature of my actions. It's hardly it's it's hard determinism, but the the way the the nature of my free will itself of how I I am an individual agency is is something that is innate or something that is within myself. So I would I, I would I, I would guess that in a way I would refer to the third option that you talked you talked about earlier which is a soul but i i'm not i'm not uh, referring to a spiritual soul but um 
it could be anything of, of any nature, but something of a soul. Yes. Yeah, but that's consistent with everything I said because I didn't reject the compatibilist notion of free will. I didn't reject free will in that sense. I just rejected free will in the libertarian contracausal sense. You know, I said I'm not. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, I also said yes. I'm familiar with you know the experience of deciding to do something or, you know, later on feeling as though you can't help but feel responsible for it. So, yeah, I'm familiar with those experiences. Yes, that is human life. Yes, we hold ourselves accountable for our choices. We hold others accountable for their choices. Yeah, that's part of what human life is. So I don't think there's anything in that which I have to say I disagree with. I'm just saying I don't think we have very good reason to believe in the libertarian conception of free will. And we haven't really talked about moral responsibility yet. I mean, I have a few ideas about that, but yeah, I mean. Okay, yeah. um, please, please tell me. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we were talking about the idea of, you know, feeling as though we're morally accountable for our actions. Now, obviously we have to have some kind of system of justice where people are deterred from doing harm to others and are required to make up for it if they have hurt others. You know, we do need that, you know, and, um, you know, it may be necessary to somehow satisfy people's feelings that, you know, if they've been hurt or a loved one's been hurt, then somehow that has to be corrected. You know, maybe we do have to have some kind of element of retribution, you know, given the way humans are right now, because we just can't get by without it. You know, if we didn't have that element to our justice system, then maybe people would start taking retribution themselves and it would get into a spiral of violence. So maybe that's necessary, although I'm not sure. So, yeah, like you need to have a criminal justice system with at least the element of deterrence and the element of requiring the criminal to make up for what he's done and maybe some retribution as well. But moral accountability in the sense of anyone actually deserves to suffer, that is something which I don't think I really believe in. You know, I don't think we deserve to suffer for our actions of wrongdoing. It's just that, you know, sometimes suffering is inevitable and, you know, sometimes action must be taken to correct the harm caused by what we've done. Like, I think that's all there is to it. Does that make sense? The problem with the referring to an objective morality is how can you demonstrate that in reality? You know, there might be a, 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 a tr something that of an objective standout out there, standard out there in the universe. But when, how would we be able to access it uh, in its purest form? You know, and it would still lead us to a, the subjectivity of, of those who claim to have it. You know, as I get older more and more, I start to become more of a meta-ethical anti-realist, which means that I think ultimately... Like, if you have a look at what Richard Joyce says in The Myth of Morality, he offers a conception of practical rationality, where basically your desires give you reasons for action, yes, but it's not just any old desire, because um, you might have some kind of conception of what your best self would want to do, you know, your very highest ideals for what you want your life to be and what sort of ideals you want to live up to, but you're temporarily being tempted to do something a bit less noble. You know, some temptation has come your way and you're tempted to betray your moral ideals. So Richard Joyce's account of it is your moral ideals are the things that give you reasons. You know, you have reason to act in accordance with your conception of what your best life would look like, assuming you have any moral ideals at all. Not everyone does, but most people do. So, okay, in that sense, your conception of what the moral life is gives you a reason to try to live up to it. And it's also possible to, you know, engage in exchanges of views with other people 
you know, you can sort of talk to each other about what your conception of the moral life looks like. You can try to get people to change their mind by pointing to this consideration or that consideration. Or you can bring moral pressure to bear on another person. You know, you can say, oh, you're thinking about doing that, but wait a moment, you know, have you looked at this aspect of how it is? And you know, So you can do all that. You know, it won't work with a psychopath, you know, psychopaths won't be moved by moral argument, but with most people it will work, you know, if you won't get complete agreement, you know, for the time being at least, you'll always have significant amount of moral disagreement. So sort of that sort of account of it, you know, there's no objective morality there, but it still gives you everything you want. You know, we don't need to say, oh, there's an objective moral truth out there waiting to be found, we just don't know what it is yet. You know, we can hope that eventually the human species will converge on one particular moral theory. That could happen. We don't know. But sort of, you know, that's the reality of what it is, you know. There's a practice called human moral discourse. People want to live up to moral ideals. You know, we can say they have reason to do that. You know, you should struggle against your temptations. You should try to be good. You can argue with people about morality. You can put moral pressure on them. You know, that's everything you want. You don't actually need there to be some objective morality whatever that could mean. So that's the other things I'm more friendly towards these days. But in the past, I have sometimes considered other views, like, for example, Sharon Hewitt-Rawlett's view about how maybe, you know, just from your acquaintance with what it is like to suffer, maybe from that alone, you can somehow see that suffering ought not to happen, and maybe that's how you get access to moral truth, you know. That could be another way, or Derek Parfitt's way of talking about it. But, yeah, yeah, so that's my view, and, um, yeah, what do you think? In terms of um, how I view morality, um, I simply look at the the actions that humans have when we we interact. So it, I I would uh, definitely say that one of them is that life is a is preferred to death, and that um, there would be the second action would be that there would be in, uh, informed enthusiastic consent in in every any every di in every dialogue. So honesty. So in terms of, for example, what we hold to be moral or how we justify acts, it has to uh, derive itself from these axioms. And and so um, this is how I would say that in a way, morality could actually be objective in terms of a socially constructed uh, paradigm. So um, in in the, in this way, if anyone is able to assent to a proposition of of wanting to do a moral act or immoral act, um, I would have to judge them in in accordance to uh, what the logical conclusions to these actions are, which that. Um, in order for me to be able to judge what is good, it is that what is good is the the continuance of human well-being and its maximization. So yeah, so it, I think that incarceration, rehabilitation, or maybe the death penalty are subject to as as restitutions for any action well there's a lot of things to be said about that i mean first of all you said human well-being so we might ask about other animals as well you know have you ever given thought to the idea that you know when we use animals for food we're hurting them quite a lot you know they suffer quite a lot in the conditions on modern farms and maybe we should stop eating that type of food since we don't really need to so that's one argument you could make and it's a disputed moral question you know people don't agree about it. it's okay we haven't reached agreement you can certainly say that much 
There's also the idea, you know, if you're sort of a privileged first world person like me, who, you know, I'm pretty privileged in my place in the global economy, so maybe I should put aside a certain amount of my money to try and make the world better, you know, try and, you know, save our species from extinction or try and help people living in the poorest parts of the world or try to stop animal suffering or whatever. That's a thing called the effective altruist movement, and I do that as well, so that's another argument. But again, not everyone agrees. There's also questions about, okay, you mentioned the death penalty, but, you know, there are some people who think the death penalty can't ever be justified because it's just too cruel. The mental suffering of people waiting for execution is just too intense and, you know, we're not ever justified in doing that no matter what they've done. So it's another area of disagreement. You could also talk about, you know, what's the best form of government and, you know, what role should government play in managing the economy or even should there be a government at all? And, okay, if we think there should be one, you know, and... You know, assuming we live in a democracy, you know, we have to decide who we're going to vote for. Is this candidate better? Is that candidate better? You have to weigh up their ideas. That's if you live in a democracy. I don't know whether Philippines is a democracy. And, um, yeah, I mean, all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, there's also the question of, you know, is global warming really happening? What should we do about it? You know, there are so many disputed questions. And, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is totally fine as a sort of bare-bones sketch, like you sort of pointed to a few things which, yeah, almost everyone would agree with, except that, you know, even with the basics, you know, I mean, um, if we think about Islamic theocracies, I don't know if Philippines is a Muslim-majority country, but, you know, there are some countries in the Middle East where, you know, by Western standards, the way they treat women uh, and indeed children who are sometimes forced to get married, you know, that would be considered very, very bad by Western standards, but they obviously see nothing wrong with it. So, yeah, that's another example, you know, the world doesn't agree about absolutely everything just yet. So, yeah, fine, but okay, yeah, you can sort of put forward a set of moral views, you can say, this is the truth about morality and you can hope to persuade others. And yeah, that's fine. You know, I don't have a problem with that. And, you know, there's probably some overlap between my moral views and your moral views. Um, it's just that if you encounter someone who you sort of, you know, you make a moral argument to them and, you know, somehow or other it just doesn't click with them, you know, because there's some fundamental axiom that seems obvious to you, but it's not obvious to them, and what do you do then? Or even someone who just doesn't care about other people at all, because there are some people like that. So, yeah, like, that's the point where moral reasoning runs out. But, yeah, I mean, if you still want to say, oh, we can still speak of objective morality, then, you know, that's fine, because it doesn't really make any difference to what you do and what you say. It's just a different take to have on it, that's all. But, yeah, like, in order to explain how social reality works, I don't think that we absolutely need the assumption of some kind of objective morality. Yeah, and uh, how about we talk about something else, like, for example, um, global politics, you know? Uh, should, for, for example, in, in the case of the Uyghurs in China, and it, it's a lot of people might say that it's wrong for for the CCP to indoctrinate um, uh, the Uyghurs out of their Isla out of their Islamic culture. So, um, should uh, other countries take a stand and stop China from doing these acts, or should they just watch because of a financial uh, debt towards China and the need the need for it to continue as a productive machine for the world? If I were the Prime Minister of Australia, I mean, of course, there's the practical considerations because, um, you know, if you 
rub the Chinese government up the wrong way too much, then you know you've got to worry about you know possible military issues or economic trade issues or whatever. So of course the practical considerations I would have to take on board. You know what is it practical for Australia to do? Um, but nevertheless, I would like to think that you know I would at least express you know I condemn what is happening here. You know this is wrong. This is a violation of human rights and. Um, you know, we condemn the Chinese government for its actions. You know, I would like to think we would do that much at the very least. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sort of the nature of our relationship with China is, you know, really quite awkward. And there was even a recent incident where they actually brought in some, um, you no, know, very powerful military battleships, you know, right into Sydney Harbour, sort of as a show of force. Which the prime minister said, "Oh, that's okay. They were there with our permission." But you know, it looked like quite a lot like an attempt to intimidate. So, you know, that's obviously very awkward. And you know, you just have to deal with realities of power relationships and you know and we don't want to hurt our economic trade relationship with china so, yeah but you know I, I do believe that the actions should at the very least be condemned you know i don't think taking military action would particularly help but yeah like i believe we should take a step so you know we do not believe this is okay yeah that would be my take yeah but th that would be so, some so in a way very hypocritical you know like you condemn something but out of your own selfishness you look at the you look you just watch what the human rights being violated but you don't actually do anything about it not even put sanctions on china at the least sanctions yeah um all right let's think um i don't have any problem with the idea of considering sanctions as one action to take i mean if I was in the position of being the Prime Minister of Australia, like it seems to me my first obligation is to look after the well-being of the Australian people. You know, there has to be some sense in which that has to come first. And you know, I just need to weigh up what the consequences of such an action would be. Like if maybe the thought is, you know, if the Chinese government is behaving in this way, you know, we shouldn't even want to do business with them. I mean, yes, you could argue that, but, you know, you sort of, you have to live in the world as it actually is and not the world that you want it to be. Um, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, if I was actually in that position and I knew a bit more about the details of the practicalities of it, you know, what are the particular trade relationships that we really depend on, you know, then I'd be able to weigh up what to do. But the point is, you know, the considerations of what the effect would be, that would have to count in some way. So, you know, because I'm not an expert on what all the relevant practicalities would be, yeah, I'm just, I'm not quite sure I can say definitively what I would do. But yeah, I mean, the idea of, you know, maybe sanctions should be imposed. Yes, it's a totally reasonable one. You know, if it's practical, if it will work, and if it will actually do some good, then yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, it seems to me that um, global politics is, uh, is purely Machiavellian in terms of of how the outcome how they want the outcomes to be you know they they condemn to feel morally right in terms of just uh committing a sense of of just omission in terms of the action that they should have done or at least at the least but they make an excuse for a selfish agenda that they have to protect their own so i'm guessing that um um this is something that that we we have to be honest about in terms of like for example the art of war you know uh, you can't just ignore the logistics and just go about uh, doing what you think is right yeah but anyways um i i, I also think that in terms of of whether whether a country 
another country is doing uh, or is violating human rights for example uh, many um islamic countries that um, kill apostates and courts just allow is let it go um i think that that western countries should should actually do something about it you know do you mean in the sense of military intervention is that what you're talking about no i'm saying that i'm thinking that um they should uh not tolerate this sort of islamic extremism if they but what does not tolerate mean you said no military intervention you mean don't do business with them or yeah what does it mean Yeah, yeah yeah that's it don't do business with them no diplomatic ties because um for example, you can see the UN United Nations like for example put sanctions on a country that had a sort of a coup d'etat on and but actually uh, for example in i think it was Sudan yeah where they they there was a military coup d'etat that was very organized and law, law and order was there only that they had to put down this corrupt uh, government but the problem was that um they just expected it to to th- them to have uh, a continual law and order in terms of economic uh benefici- beneficiary for the united nations uh, itself so it seems that um economics or money plays a huge role in the united nations instead of the well-being of every country well you're absolutely right about that like economics has to kick in somewhere because there are economic realities right okay we do need oil at the moment you know that's just a reality you know if suddenly we don't have any oil you know then what's going to happen there so yeah of course economic realities you know they have to be factored in now it doesn't mean it should be all economic considerations and nothing else you know um but yeah like you know because i'm not sort of you know right up there at the very top of the power structure and i'm not familiar with all the details of you know what it would be practical to do and what it would not be practical to do because i think you know when you're you know a leader of one of the countries or you're a un person or whatever and you're making public statements you know what you think to yourself and what you try and do would be very very different from what you actually say out loud in public so i mean we watch what's happening and we think oh you know this is all just cynical power politics going on and yeah okay you're probably right but you know if you're actually in that position and trying to do things differently well, you know the practical realities would be there and you wouldn't be able to say everything you think out loud in public so what advice would you give to someone who also wants to dive into philosophy and uh, the level of intellect that requires someone to be objective or simply uh, be not be as gullible as they were before Um well let's think um I mean I can mention to you books that I think are worth reading I mean there's a huge amount to read obviously I mean for example I could mention Bertrand Russell's Problems of Philosophy or Penelope Maddy's Second Philosophy I should also add I'm more widely read in analytical philosophy rather than continental philosophy you know I think it's quite good to you know get a feel for what's out there you know the range of views people have defended Also um there's a website created by a man called Eliezer Yudkovsky called Less Wrong and you know I don't necessarily agree with everything he says but you know he's very very big on teaching people about techniques for how to become more rational in your views about reality and stuff like that and I think a lot of what he has to say there is worth reading and um yeah I, I mean uh, it depends you know do you want to familiarize yourself with western philosophy or philosophy from some other culture and will it be analytic philosophy or continental philosophy but if it's western analytic philosophy you want then 
I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff to read, and uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, just go hunting for what interests you the most. And um... So, that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>